In my uh, Faith Matters blog on Friday, I mentioned a recent survey of the American religious topography. As reported in the Christian Post, according to the general social survey, persons of no religion, otherwise known as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, right? N-O-N-E-S. That number now exceeds the number of those who identify as evangelical. One analyst observes, the nuns are not slowing down. Their share of the population is continuing to climb about 1% every two years and has done so for the past 15 years or so. If current trends keep up, they will be by far the largest religious demographic in the United States within the next five years. And then um, this article has a graph with some interesting information in it, a few teaser facts. In the 1970s, the largest U.S. religious group was what was called mainline Protestant. That, of course, includes Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and so on. The Methodists being the largest of those. Evangelicals peaked as the largest demographic in the early 90s in the United States. And shortly thereafter, then, the nuns began to creep up, now surpassing all other categories. The reasons for this sweeping change are overly determined. We've talked about this from time to time in here, and it's a topic that will continue to resonate given the trend lines. But I want to observe that all aspects of American institutional life are currently under siege. We all feel this. There is a vast social upheaval underway, rocking all established forms of social organization, religious, political, educational, and community-based. The United Methodist Church's impending fracture is but one lone example of the tectonic shifts. Now, I believe that Eventually, there will be a reclamation of the necessity of healthy institutions since they're an inevitable outcome of our desire to accomplish good ends over long stretches of time. You cannot do anything worthwhile that's big unless you have an institutional formulation over long periods of time. For instance, you cannot cure cancer with an occasional GoFundMe campaign. This requires enormous effort, commitment, and resources over time. I mean, think of it. You know, hospitals and universities and doctors and researchers and funders and politicians and coders, etc., in a collaborative dance over decades and decades, a veritable institutional cornucopia 
Without those various structures engaged and evolving over long periods, no progress would be possible. And actually, you know, when you, when you get into it, the same is true for a life that's well situated in healthy community for 80 or 90 years, assuming that's about how long you want to live. Though we don't often think of this, all of us, every one of us, is very dependent upon both formal and informal institutional structures for our thriving. The opioid epidemic is but one indicator of the breakdown of healthy community structures. A thoughtful commentator on these matters, David Brooks, wrote a recent column on what we might learn from certain specific rural communities that are thriving in social capital despite stressed economies. An example, he reports that McCook, Nebraska, <clears throat> has only 7,700 residents, but it has a Rotary Club, a 4-H Club, a Future Farmers Group, a music festival, a storytelling festival, a chapter of the Nebraska Community Foundation, multiple churches, libraries, museums, and a James Beard award-winning bakery and coffee shop. If a teenager misbehaves, he reports, his parents have heard about it by the time he gets home. <laughs> Many people make time for civic life and seem to wear 15 hats. Jared Muhlenkamp runs a print and design store. He went to three meetings after work the day before I met him, Brooks reports, including the city council on which he serves. Mark Graff, who runs a local bank, says he spends 50% of his time in volunteering. Runs a bank, 50% of his time in volunteering. His sister-in-law, Rhonda Graff, is raising seven children. She also writes for the newspaper, coaches swimming, is a substitute teacher and bus driver, competes in Ironman triathlons, works at the Y, helps run a concert series, helped organize the building of the dog park, helps out with a high school discipline program, and seems to sit on every spontaneous civic organization that pops up." Unquote. These formal and informal associations, think of it, these formal and informal associations are a function of people showing up in a committed way over long periods of time in support of the common good. And Brooks points out that this isn't dependent upon a prosperous economy. For instance, at most McCook schools, 50% of the students receive free or reduced cost lunch. Human thriving is less dependent upon wealth than it is upon humane and healthy institutional structures. And like I said, we are living in a moment where these structures are under very great stress. Hard to tell if a place like McCook, Nebraska, will survive the current trends or ultimately succumb. But we do well to pay attention to what's going on and what our own 
behavior patterns reveal right here in our hometown? That's a good question for Lent. As for the current state of the church, you know, I've always been aware that the organized forms of religion were not faith itself, but a means for holding and pointing to and encouraging, even occasionally embodying the things that matter most of all, things like the Christ Church mission to love God above all things and our neighbors as ourselves, for instance. Now, one day, I believe there will be a resurgence of effective religious organizing, This will occur as a very natural human response to the great mystery of our being born and having to die and the rediscovery of the actual content of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth, something portions of the church today have unfortunately and inexplicably lost track of as its principal focus. Friends, let's be reminded that Jesus lived in extremely disruptive times. Let's remember as we accompany him on the final leg of his journey to Jerusalem that the religious and political and social structures of his day were in great distress. It was into that chaotic environment that Jesus was born and lived and moved and had his being. Today's reading from Luke begins with Jesus hanging out with his hometown folks in Galilee, his people. When several report how some of his fellow Galileans had been killed by Pilate's men, mingling their blood with their sacrifices. This, by the way, is the same Roman governor that will sentence Jesus to death a short time ahead as he tried to manage the complicated religious political landscape in Jerusalem. So this was like receiving a news report about deadly political terrorism. Did you know Pilate sent his men into the temple and cut some of our brothers down like lambs to the slaughter, and not simply like lambs to the slaughter, but alongside the sacrificial slaughtered lambs. Such was the state of things in Jesus' day. No doubt these reporters sought Jesus' support for active rebellion or assumed that was the outcome he favored as he made his way to Jerusalem. You remember how he enters Jerusalem, hailed as a conquering hero, right? But he does not follow their lead. Instead, he turns the question back onto them. And rather than wallowing in the terror of the Romans, they should take stock of the content of their own lives, since peril stalks everyone, regardless of who they are, and each is responsible for a useful, fruitful outcome. Pay attention, he seems to say. Work the soil and the roots of your own life. That's also a valuable lesson for Lent. But I want to stay just for a moment with that 
chaotic social political context for just a little longer. I want us to really get the fact that Jesus lived a real life in real times fraught with severe and violent contextualizing problems. Because in this way, he was exactly as we are. We're also living real lives in real times fraught with severe and violent contextualizing problems. It is the church's tendency to sanitize, mythologize, and sentimentalize Jesus. We've really got to stop that. Because if we don't, we'll miss what's at stake in the content of our own lives. Because we mustn't sanitize, mythologize, and sentimentalize the content of our lives either. And like the Galileans, we are very prone to point fingers everywhere for the cause of our discontent except where? At ourselves. There's a lot of people out there you hate these days, aren't there? Tell me there aren't. There's a lot of people out there you hate. You see what Jesus did when he confronted his hometown crowd? Don't wallow in your hatred of the Romans. That's not where your work belongs. Given that, his admonition to dig around in the soil of our own lives takes on a lot greater meaning, right? Waking up to what is, in fact, true now in your life. What is? What matters most to you? And how we've focused our priorities, what we actually do with our time and our energy and our resources. What are we doing and what are we becoming? Friends, in these days ahead, as the cultural tremors wax and wane, man, I encourage you to think of Christ's church as an outpost of safety and inclusion and community that remains steadfastly committed to walking the path Jesus blazed as best we can. As I mentioned on the Sunday after the recent disastrous General Conference of the United Methodist Church, denominations come and go, but the gospel stands forever. Forever is a long time, I'll grant you. In the meantime, 
We have choices to make and work to do. Communities to build up and sustain with our sweat and blood and resources. And love and justice to promote and embody as modeled by Jesus Christ. Boy, that's staring us right in the face. If only we could see it. If only we could see it. I tell you, the church that understands this as its essential commitment is the church that has the very best chance of standing on the other side of the earthquake as a beacon of hope. I, I just enthusiastically invite you to help make it so. I mean, after all, we are resurrection people, are we not? Will you say amen? amen. Say it louder. Amen. amen. <laughs>